You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. So I listened to a podcast recently about loneliness, about this crisis we have in our country. Pastor Ben talked about this a little bit last week, uh, and there was so much data and research for decades showing us that our friendship networks are shrinking. Uh, Just a few of the stats, and that's it. I'm not doing the full stat thing. Pastor Ben's better at it. Uh, A few of the stats that stood out to me that they highlighted, that we're losing close friendships faster than we make new ones. That over the last decades, you look at the average person's life, and they're losing their friends faster than they're creating new close friendships. Uh, A quarter of people in some of these studies said that they have no one to confide in. So a a significant portion of this room would say, I don't have a single person in my life that I can confide the deepest parts of me in. Uh, And then depending on your age, a quarter of people say they experience severe loneliness, And another quarter says they experience it, but a little less often and a little more mildly. So looking at this room, that's imagining that that half of this room, that split in half, you would say, I experience loneliness. Some of you, it's the heaviest part of your life. And for others of you, it might not be constant, but you have experienced loneliness. And as it increases, it's costing us. Rates of depression and suicide have gone up. Loneliness leads to a significantly higher risk of heart disease, stroke, dementia, among other things. Uh, The Surgeon General Vivek Murphy, one of the last Surgeon Generals, he was big on this idea of loneliness because of the health effects. That not having any connection, being lonely, is as deadly for us as smoking a pack a day. As being a regular smoker, it's just as bad to be lonely. And many of you know this intimately in your own life. That loneliness is a constant weight on your shoulders. It's freezing outside, and maybe it feels like loneliness is that winter jacket just weighing down on you, bearing down on you. Some of us, because of circumstances, uh, going off to college, uh, finding a new job in D.C., the loss of a loved one, maybe a mistake that you made that has pushed people away, uh, it has been thrust upon you, this loneliness in this season of your life. And many of you are probably here because you are lonely. He said, I need to find like-minded people. I need to find somewhere to belong. And I would say that all of us, we try to avoid that pain. We try to numb that pain. And there's so many different ways that we numb the loneliness in our life. Uh, Casual sex, uh, focusing on a career, maybe jumping around from relationship to relationship, friend group to friend group, church to church, There's so many different ways that we say, I just want to distract myself. I want to put screens in front of me all the time, or I want to uh, have some addiction that I go to instead of thinking about the fact that I'm disconnected, I'm lonely, I'm depressed. We are all starved for meaningful relationships. Now, why did I listen to this podcast? I didn't need proof. Uh, I have heard so many different statistics of how lonely we are, and I believe it. I've experienced loneliness in my life. I Uh, speak to so many of you, so many different friends of mine who I realize that loneliness is a real issue. Uh, And I didn't necessarily need the why, the why we're loneliness. Pastor Ben, like I said last week, he he looked at a lot of that technology and generational differences, why we've become so lonely. So I wasn't seeking the why and I didn't necessarily need proof. I wanted to listen to this podcast to see how the world tells us to fix it. 
Because in this podcast, which was kind of this uh, science of happiness, they had gathered the dream team of experts, just the, the Kansas City Chiefs of psychology, of friendship experts. There was, like I said, that Furman, former Surgeon General. There was uh, Yale grads, Harvard grads, all of these experts about loneliness, friendship, psychology, all of these relationships. I wanted to see what do these people have to say about this? What is their perspective on fixing this issue? They broke loneliness down into three categories, uh, three types of connection that we all desire and need. The first one was collective loneliness. So imagine that is a space like this. That is a, a larger group that we share an identity with, that every person wants that kind of relationship, someone to share a larger identity with. You find it in, in churches. You see it in sports teams. You see it in political parties that I want to identify with this group to belong to something bigger than myself. The second type is this relational type of loneliness that we often have. That is a smaller group of friends. Uh, that is maybe a Super Bowl party worth of friends that you've gone to. That you're like, these are 10, 20, 30, 40 people that I know a little bit better. I spend time with. Uh, this is my friend group. And then the third type was this intimate loneliness. Sometimes we look for that in a romantic partner. And sometimes it's just our closest confidant, our best friend. So three different categories of loneliness that we all need those three. And they, they explore them. They explore the reasons why we're lonely in those ways. Uh, and they kind of prescribe some tools for how to fill those social gaps. Early on in the podcast, they focused their gaze on religion as a positive example to follow. And it was kind of fascinating because they didn't linger on it too long. They surveyed the social landscape and they kind of said, hey, religious communities are bucking a lot of these trends, so let's look at what churches are doing that's different. But what they did is they grabbed a few vaguely faith-adjacent principles, detached from any kind of meaning or beliefs or faith itself, and then they said, here's how we could maybe implement those in secular spaces. So religion essentially became watered down to a shared hobby. Uh, you could find the same meaning and purpose, encouragement, uh, connection in a gym or in a book club. And they kind of show that this is what the church does. We could find that as well in these spaces if you do these things correctly. Uh, and I don't want to diminish this podcast. I don't want to bash this podcast. It was uh, helpful. It was genuinely helpful. I am an introvert. I took tools away from this podcast to be better at making friends myself. So I don't want to bash psychology or all these different tools because I do think they're important. But I left listening to it stuck on their misinterpretation of the church. Uh, that to them, it was just this simplification of Christian beliefs. But to me, that didn't offer a compelling answer to a very important question. How did this ragtag group of Jesus followers who were persecuted, who were hated, who were this small little sect of Judaism in everyone else's eyes, how did that grow from this little group into one of the most influential groups in human history? It doesn't make sense to me that that's just a few things they share in common, a few things they both like. There has to be something more. At the beginning of the second century, uh, less than a tenth of a percent of the Roman Empire was Christian. That is an overwhelming minority. 
So I imagine myself, as I, as I process this, that's like going to the Colosseum in ancient Rome and there's these Christians being martyred, being persecuted for sport, and me turning to a Roman citizen and saying, one day, all of these buildings will be a place that Grayson visits, uh, an archi- old architecture in dust and whatever, but somehow this group that's being persecuted will have covered the globe and still be existing thousands of years later. That's ridiculous. If you think of those numbers, that's like me saying that one day the United States of America will cease to exist. No one will even remember much about it except for the ways of Cleveland. (laughs) That every cultural thing of America disappeared is no longer relevant, but Pittsburgh... The culture of Pittsburgh has transcended on throughout ages and influenced the entire world. That's not a knock on Cleveland or Pittsburgh. Those are just the first two cities of a certain size that worked for this illustration. But that is what they're saying. And it doesn't make sense to me that this little group of Christians somehow became so massive. So as I sat down to think about this message, what does it mean to belong? I kept asking myself, how has Jesus forged this family of people across the globe that has withstood every single force that has ever tried to crush it, that has gone between ethnic lines, racial lines, every single barrier that the world had to offer, somehow the church has pushed on into history. It can't just be a couple of interesting tips and tricks for how to make friends and build community. And there's many different ways we can try to answer it, but I kept coming back to one phrase, one another. There's this Greek word, alelon. It occurs frequently in various forms in the New Testament. Uh, It's used often and packed into this phrase that Jesus used, that, that Paul uses a lot, is this framework for how this community is meant to live. That there's something different about this community because of Jesus and because of their commands of this is who you are in Jesus and now this is how you are meant to live with one another. There's something different there. And it's not systems and structures. They do offer that in the New Testament. They kind of show, hey, here are some ways that the church needs to be ran. Here's some different tactics, whatever. But that's not the main story. It's about attitudes and actions. How we're meant to feel about each other, act towards each other, how we're not meant to treat each other. The church, united by Jesus, in Jesus, and for his renown and name, is called to live in a way that's set apart from every other worldview. And I believe that that is the answer to that loneliness question. That when we look to the church, it's not just a shared thing that we all like. There's something about who Jesus is and what he has done in us that has forged this community that has survived. So today, I want us to look at that. I want us to get very practical because I believe that God's word offers a compelling and timeless path into formative friendships. Christ-centered friendships that will last. And I believe that starts by asking the question, what does this community of the king look like? So there's many places we could start, but I wanna take us to Colossians because that's what I've been reading in my own time. Uh, So I looked at this massive chunk of text, Colossians 3. It's a relatively small book. This is all of Colossians, basically. Yep, yep, one book. Uh, We're looking at a fourth of Colossians today. Uh, And in this book, Paul is writing to a church that is under siege by bad ideas, false teachings about Jesus that are diminishing the gospel and leading people astray. 
And over the first two chapters, what Paul does is he sets kind of some theological barriers that this is who Jesus is. They have been saying things about him, but this is who he is. And because of what he has done, something has changed in you. He does that throughout the first two chapters. And then we get to the third chapter, and Paul moves from doctrine to practical advice. Pastor Ben talked about this last week with Ephesians, that Paul does this often. So Paul's saying, here's how this truth about you, that you were spiritually dead, you were separated from God, but now because of Jesus, you are reconciled with God, you are in God, you are in Jesus, because of this shift, some things need to change in your life. That this was true about you, this is true about you now, and because of that, we're gonna move into practical advice. So for the rest of our time today, I want us to look at three different instructions that Paul gives kind of in these three different paragraphs. And I wanna ask ourselves how we can practice them together. We're so used to viewing scripture through an individualistic lens. What does this mean for me? I'll show up to a Sunday, I'll listen to the sermon, and I'll try to apply it in my life in this little way. But it's a good reminder for us that this wasn't meant to be done on our own. That even in this letter, Paul is not writing to a person, he's writing to a people. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. And so I want us to challenge ourselves today and ask us this question, what does this mean for us? The person next to you, the friend that you have at this church, the people in this room, I don't want us to go home and say, well, here's a few little things I can do to change me, but really to think, how can we do something together? How can we take part in this together? Because we are called to be in one body. And I believe that Paul's instructions will absolutely draw us near to Jesus, but they also have the ability and the power to draw us deeper in unity with one another. So I'm gonna tip my cards here a little bit. Uh, Paul is not about to give us a system to implement. So if you're like, I have opinions on how you do community groups and core and family groups and everything else, I love to hear those. Uh, but today we're not gonna look at tactics. We're not gonna say, well, we should do things this way. We're gonna look at a posture. He's giving us a posture to embody. He's calling us to look up at Jesus, to look in at ourselves, and to look out at one another. So, starting in verse one, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It says, if then, if you are now affiliated with Jesus, if something has changed about you because of that affiliation, then there are some things we need to do. Some things need to happen. And he gives us these two commands, two tasks for believers in these first four verses. And they are united in that posture of looking up. We are to seek and to set. Seek and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I love how the commentary uh, written by Douglas Moo put this. He said, we are meant to orient ourselves around heavenly realities. This isn't a spiritual detachment. There's a version of that where you say, set your mind, seek things above. That's just like me living up here in the spiritual realm and I have a higher power and all of you are living down here. That isn't what Paul is saying. He's not calling us to detach ourselves from the world. He's calling us to reprioritize. He's calling us to look at how we used to live and say some things need to change. 
reorientation of our affections, our mind, our will, our very life around Jesus. So all this starts here. This is our why. Uh, I love that we just sang the wonderful cross, that, that lyric of he bids me come and die. I love that idea that looking at the cross, that change of who we are because of the cross, it bids us to come and die to some stuff behind us and change who we are. So when we were spiritually dead, we lived a me-oriented life. Uh, How do I get mine? How do I maximize pleasure, minimize pain, do what I think is best for me? But because of who we are now, we have a Christ-oriented life. Something has shifted in how we are supposed to look at what we're supposed to look at. What is the most important thing to us? Now we say, what do you say is important? What do you value? What do you prioritize? That should dictate all of the decisions that we are making. And this posture is a rebellion against cultural norms uh, because the earthly things now submit to a new authority over me. That the world is saying, sex is meant to look like this. It's meant to be used like this. Fulfillment is meant to be found in this space, in this job, in this type of living. Uh, Success looks like this. Success looks like being here, being this place on the job chart, having this much money. That is what the world is telling us. But if we are reorienting ourselves around Jesus, we say none of those things dictate what is important. What is true, what is good, is now controlled by this. It's now controlled by this Jesus that I have given myself Two, God has given me a new set of values and priorities to filter my life through. And often that does mean some bad things need to be cast out. I think that's important. We're going to talk about putting to death soon. Sometimes when we reprioritize our life around Jesus, we have to say, I can't do this anymore. I'm not supposed to be doing this. But more often than not, it's a lot of good things that, as Pastor Ben says, have made bad gods in our life. A lot of good things that don't need to be cast out, but they need to be knocked down a couple rungs. How you view your job, how you view relationships, how you view yourself, some of those things need to change and Jesus needs to become the top priority in your life. So before we do anything else, we have to do this personally. Like I said, there is a personal component to our faith, but there's also a horizontal component. And personally here, You have to do this on your own. You have to ask yourself, how am I reorienting my life around Jesus? But how does this look communally? Friendships are always oriented around something. Uh, There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote you've probably heard before. Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you too? In the same book, he says, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Uh, I have made friends over a lot of different things in my life. I have the group text to prove it. I have uh, friends that we, we love talking about the misery that the Atlanta Falcons have brought us. I have friends that love to celebrate the Atlanta Braves. I'm not going to keep doing sports ones, but I could. But I have so many different relationships of, oh, this person I knew growing up that we liked video games together and we, we bonded over a liking of that. Or uh, Becca and I, before we started dating, before we got married, there were things we both liked that drew us in to each other. And you all have it too. Board games, TV shows, poetry, uh, a love for fitness, bless you, political views, uh, a love of serving, of cooking, some musician that only you know, or some musician that all of you know and love. Uh, These are things that bind us together. 
our friendships, particularly as we get older, we get out of a school and we kind of have to make these friendships on our own time, they're often oriented around these surface level things. And that's not bad. That is a great way to begin a connection of, hey, we both love this thing, so let's rally around it. Let's enjoy it together. It's not a bad thing. Many of the good gifts that we enjoy in this life are from God. Shared passions are a great place to start. That's why we have opportunities at this church. Uh, We did meetups a couple different times last year to say, hey, if you love hiking, meet people at our church who love hiking. Or community groups you go to, and we often have these discussion questions that sometimes can start out on pretty arbitrary things. They're not deep, but it's a chance to look at someone across the table and say, me too. I love that. I love that musician. I love that hobby. I love doing that, going to that place. But if we want a community worth belonging to, friendships that will shape us and people that will stick with us through the highs and lows of life, we have to go deeper than surface level. We cannot linger on just the shared interest in a thing. So ask yourself this, what do my friendships revolve around? Maybe you're thinking of your golf buddy, or maybe it's that person at work that your friendship revolves around complaining about work. There's so many different things we are oriented around, but I would challenge you, do you have people around you that are oriented around Jesus as well? brothers and sisters who are looking up at him and saying, this is what determines everything else in my life, not what I want, not what I like. That isn't to say you can't have strong connections with people who don't believe the same things you do. I have friends like this who have different worldviews. But I would contend that there is no stronger bond two people can share than a shared identity in Jesus Christ. Because an identity in Jesus is not a fad, it's not a season of life, it's not something that will eventually wither away, it's a complete reorientation of who we are. A shared delight in God is stronger than we both love the Lakers. A desire to follow God's way is a better foundation to put a friendship on than we laugh at the same jokes. Later, Paul will say in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And what he is saying is that our shared experience of grace in Jesus transcends any other tie, that our ethnic differences, our socioeconomic differences, our political differences, all of these different categories, all of those submit to the unity in the body of Christ. I didn't have... Uh, friendships like this in college, and it was rough, to be honest. I, I had a great church community growing up, and then I went off to college, and I didn't really have a lot of friendships around me that were spiritual in nature, that were oriented around Jesus. I uh, made excuses for it. I, I had all these different reasons of like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll get involved in a church eventually. I'll get involved in a small group eventually. But I didn't. And over time, all of my friendships that I did have that were great friends, they had different worldviews. They had different value systems. The things that were important to them were not the things that I claimed were important to me. And over time, as I kind of compartmentalized my faith and I said, well, this is my friend group. That's just kind of my side gig, the thing that I do on the side. I became transformed into the value set of these other people. Again, not a knock on them. They have different values. They're going to live a certain way. But because I did not have people around me that were 
aiming at the same thing. I let myself be transformed and shaped by those who were around me until it got to a point late in college where I looked at myself and everything about my life was not congruent with what I would have said is true about me and not congruent with what I'd say is true about Jesus. That is the power of the friendships that we have around us. The theologian Carl Truman said, our identity is shaped by the communities to which we belong, which means the church needs to be the strongest community to which we belong. Forge friendships that are oriented around the things that are above. By all means, connect over a hobby. I love seeing people in our house, in this church, having fun together, enjoying things together. There's a group of men who they go and they work out on the mall and they talk about their devotional time. They talk about what they're learning. There's uh, many of you know Fernay who did uh, giving uh, recently. She had Cafe Fernay at her house yesterday where Tony made coffee and people just came and hang out because they liked having that shared space together. There's so many ways we can choose to do the things that bring us life with people that bring us life but it point towards something deeper than just hanging out. I would urge you to create friendships like this. Do not linger in the shallow places in all of your friendships. And then the next command that Paul gives us, he shows what that orientation around Jesus is meant to look like. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, uh, slander, malice, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. So if we want to have a heavenly mindset, if we orient ourselves around Jesus, then some things need to change. We need to be eager to cease some behaviors, cease some Uh, things that we go to that do not reflect this mindset. That is what Paul is saying here. Our next posture is looking in at ourselves, at some of our attitudes, our dispositions, and saying this needs to be put to death. And he gives us two lists here. Uh, Not exhaustive of sins that we might struggle with. Uh, Verse five, he says, sexual immorality, that's sexual activity that runs counter to God's design. Impurity, sometimes used generally with moral corruption. Uh, passion, which is often translated as lust, evil desires, that's a going to a forbidden thing for satisfaction, covetousness, that's greed, desire for more that disregards the other. So this first kind of grouping is this uncontrollable desire for more experiences and pleasures to fill us. Uh, it particularly has this sexual connotation here. Verse eight, he looks at kind of these sins of speech, how we talk to and about other people. It says anger and wrath, that's outbursts of rage, malice, ill will towards someone. These first three work together to convey this general hateful attitude towards other people. And it often leads to slander, destroying someone's uh, reputation and who they are with words. Obscene talk, which is using coarse language to disparage someone and lying. These lists are fitting for this message today because they are communal in nature. That all of these sins, yes, they have personal implications, but they have community implications as well. Take lust, for example. Pornography has personal damage on someone. How they view themselves, how they view sex, how they view other people. Uh, An addiction to pornography is going to damage you on the inside, but it also has a communal impact. The way it ruins 
marriages, relationships. It pushes us to push boundaries in our relationships. It's created men and women that can't function properly. And there's so much I could say about all the other sins on this list that they have, yes, a personal impact on us, but they have a communal impact as well. They they, uh, harm us, but they also fray the fabric of our communities. And that's why Paul is so harsh. He doesn't say chill out on the sexual immorality. He says, put that to death. You gotta stop it. That's the old you and you can't go down this path anymore. And there's all kinds of tools and methods we could talk about to help us putting it to death in a personal way. And we've talked about a lot of them in this church before, but I wanna talk about how we can do that in community. If these are communal affecting actions, how can we put those sins to death in a community? And I would argue the key to this lies in confession, in accountability, opening up to one another to shed light on the things that we are struggling with. If we were made for community, then it's community that we should be putting these things to death. But the enemy wants to draw us into isolation because that's home field for him. It's in isolation that he can convince you, well, if you tell someone, they'll leave you behind. If you tell someone, they won't love you anymore. If you tell someone, if you tell someone, you gotta keep it to yourself. That is why the enemy wants to pull us into isolation where we can convince ourselves that the dark is safer than the light. But in confession, there's freedom and healing. I love where James talks about this. James 5, 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So how does confession heal us? I love uh, John Piper once explained it this way. He pointed to Psalm 32 and he said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This idea that bottling up our sin often has a literal physical impact on us. The shame and guilt that we get from keeping our sin to ourselves will eat away at us. It'll lead us to lie to people. It'll lead us to make excuses. But by confessing to a dear friend and shedding light on our sin, it helps release our grip on it. Uh, I've experienced this as well. Uh, like so many of you as growing up in this time, this culture of technology, the more technology got in my hands, I struggled with pornography more and more growing up because it was so accessible. And as I had more freedom growing up and everything was in my hands, it became this problem I struggled with. And I was the type of person that could fight it off for a season, a, a year, two years, and kind of say, oh, that's behind me. But it always found a way to come creeping back. And I remember... Uh, about two years into our marriage, I started to struggle again. I started to, to look at my phone, to go to places I didn't need to go, to look at images I didn't need to look at. And I felt all of this immense guilt and shame, but I was too afraid to share it with Becca because I thought, what would she think? We've been married for two years now. I thought I had this under control. I can't tell her. What if she knows? And I remember at that time, um, we were looking to move to DC and I flew up to DC to kind of, finish some things up with the apartment we were going to move into, uh, measure some things, finish up, get some keys, finish up some different utility things that need to be set up from afar. And I got the chance while there to come to Passion 2019 uh, just as a guest. And I remember this moment that is burnt into my memory of Pastor Matt Chandler. He was speaking and he said this phrase that has stuck with me for five years now. He said, if you were... 99% known, then you are unknown. 
that if there is 1% of you that you keep to yourself, if there's some darkness, some thing that you go to that you know you're not supposed to go to that doesn't bring you life, that's eating away at you, if you keep that to yourself, you're unknown. Your family, your, your spouse, your friends, those people cannot truly know you if you are trying to hide that small little bit of you. And I was letting that 1% of darkness eat away at me. And I was terrified when Becca picked me up from the airport at Atlanta because I knew after hearing that, I had to say something. I couldn't keep this in anymore. But when I shared with her what I was struggling with, I was flooded with a grace that I had never felt before. And I remember uh, having this chance now to take what was dark in me, what was hidden in me, put it to light, and with her and with so many other people, work on putting that to death. And it started with my wife, it started with her, but when we moved up here, I made it a priority. I'm getting in a circle with a group of men that I can share my wins, I can share my losses, they can speak to how I spend my money, they can speak to how I treat my wife, treat my kids, they can speak to uh, addictions and vices and different places that I might go. I made it a priority to get around men that I could confess and be accountable with men who would challenge me, who would love me, who would give me advice if I need it, accountability if I need it, uh, but often would just be an ear that I could speak to. When the people of God shine light on their sin to one another, God will take those willing hearts and he will transform us. And there are helpful and unhelpful ways to do this. So thinking about confession practically, I love this church community, but I'm not about to go in the Lincoln lobby and start sharing with every single one of you. Well, you know, I got angry the other day and I said some things to the person who cut me off that I shouldn't have said. And uh, I'm going, doing this thing too much and I'm getting frustrated about this. No, we don't go to every single person bearing every single thing. That's not fruitful. Uh, For many reasons, confession functions best within intimate established friendships. But If you don't have this, let me urge you with this before moving on. Prioritize building friendships like this. Like I said, if we are orienting ourselves around Jesus, if we are going deeper than these surface level things, we need to prioritize having friendships in our life where we can do this. Don't go through life thinking you can handle it all on your own. For some of you, a practical step is just opening up a little bit more. That you have friends that you know from church, that you see uh, they're oriented around the same thing. You hang out with them in groups. Uh, a group of guys will hang out and you, you like this guy. You like hanging out with him. Go to coffee. Share a little bit more about you. Share a little bit more about your faith. Share a little bit more about what you're struggling with. Over time, as this friendship gets deeper and deeper, take advantage of that to say, I need you to hear these things. I need someone that I can go to. Watch how the Lord can work in friendships to put our old self to death, but we have to take those next steps. And finally, the last section, Paul moves from put off to put on. There's old ways of thinking and living that we need to live behind, but there are some new things that we need to adopt. And these new ways are a posture of looking out, at looking at each other instead of focusing on ourselves, the concerns and interests of each other. It says, put on then. It's God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
So he reminds us of who we are, going back to Colossians 1 and 2. We are chosen by God despite what we've done. We are holy. We've been set apart and made right with him. And we are beloved. We are loved by God. And because of these titles bestowed on us through Jesus, we have a new identity. And because of that identity, we are then called to put on, to clothe ourselves with some virtues, some traits, some characteristics. Compassionate hearts, that's a word for for guts, deep down concern for one another. Care about others in a way we never have before. Kindness, that's a desire to help. We don't stand aside in our numbness watching someone in pain. We move towards it in the same way that God moved towards us. We put on humility. I love Pastor Ben's explanation of humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's a willingness to disadvantage myself for you, which Jesus modeled. Philippians shows us that. That he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He disadvantaged himself for our disadvantage. That doesn't mean he looked down on himself. He was great and he knew he was great, but he put that aside for us. That is what humility is. Meekness, we're gentle in our treatment of one another. And patience, we keep hanging in there. I love that he includes patience because I can model all of those once or twice. It's when you ask me to keep doing it, to keep showing kindness, to keep showing meekness, uh, that things get a little dicey. These characteristics, these virtues, they all play out in community. Their very nature is that they are dictated by how we react with someone one-on-one. Your kindness has to have another. You cannot be hypothetically humble. These traits, we often read scriptures and we say, be humble, check, holy, check, got it. But how does it actually play out? How are we demonstrating these characteristics? Paul shows us how they might play out. He says, bear with one another and forgive each other. Bearing with is almost this grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or people. It is the bare minimum. This is not the glamorous, beautiful work of the Christian life. Paul is saying, for the sake of the community, suck it up. Deal with it. Don't quit or complain the second things get hard, the second you get frustrated. This is hard. We have been programmed to complain, to cancel, to gossip, to attack, to blame, to run away, onto the next friend group, onto the next church, onto the next person, the next thing, I'm out. And Paul is saying that sometimes you simply are called to endure one another. Uh, The parents in the room know this. We have a toddler, and we are enduring her a lot right now. (laughs) It is not the glamorous, beautiful things you put on Instagram. When she is breaking every single rule with an evil look in her eye that makes you, you think you're like, I understand what sin is now because she's looking at me and she knows it's bad. And she's body slamming her two-week-old sister. And we're just like, our response is not gentle parenting where you're just, it's fine, everything's good, I love you, and I forgive you. Our response is enduring. It's saying, you know what? We're not gonna kick you out because you're not two. (laughs) When she keeps doing these things, it doesn't always look like the most beautiful patient's response. Instead, it's this bearing with her that says, it's okay. And from that bearing with, we forgive. I love that he says, if one has a complaint, he's assuming real grievances will be had. 
we will have reasons to complain. And our options are the world's response, I'm done, we're done, this is done, you're over, goodbye, or Jesus' response, which is I forgive you. When that person makes you the butt of the joke or they embarrass you or you are wronged by a brother or sister, we choose forgiveness instead of resentment, bearing with instead of running away. This doesn't free us from consequences. Let me say that. There's nuance to this discussion of bearing with and forgiving about what that practically looks like. But I love Paul's inclusion of this phrase. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He binds our forgiving to the forgiveness that Christ extended to us. What if they don't deserve it? You didn't either. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have been given a better way, and that way is not arbitrary. That way is rooted. It is anchored in the reality that when we didn't deserve it, Christ bared with us. Christ endured us. Christ forgave us. There's something different about how we do things, not because of us, but because of him. In tying it all together, he says, above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. All this is bound together by a love that Jesus has for us, the love that seeks to do what is best for the other. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. If we needed any other reminders of the communal implications, they're right here. That word rule is the same as an umpire or a judge. What decides how we act with one another? What determines our actions? Maintaining peace and unity within the body. We all want a community like this. This is not a revolutionary statement. What are you looking for in a friend? Oh, you know, cruelty, indifference, arrogance, pride. No, we are drawn to humble, patient, kind people, people who forgive us, people who bear with us. We want that. So Paul is calling us here to be that because this is a reminder that all are called to be this. Often we compartmentalize and we say, she's the humble girl, he's the kind guy, they're the the patient people over there, Paul is saying, all of y'all, all of you put on these things. No one gets to say, kindness is not really my thing in the kingdom of heaven. I have seen these verses play out time and time again every time someone moves. My brother and uh, his wife, they moved this weekend and it reminded me of when we got to DC. My wife and I drove up and uh, drove into the city the morning that a blizzard was going to hit. And we were already lost. I think we were illegally driving a U-Haul way too close to the Capitol, just confused. We didn't know anyone in the city but John and Maddie. And so to our surprise, we pull up to a building and there was a block full of people ready to move us into our place, donuts and coffee ready, that John and Maddie had said, hey, guys, come help my brother, come help my sister-in-law move in. And it was the quickest move in I have ever experienced in my life that all these people that I had never really even met before showed up to do something for us. And then at the end of it, they prayed for us. They said, welcome to DC, welcome to this community, we're gonna pray for you. They had nothing to gain by doing that. No money, no social status, they didn't even get breakfast from us. Sometimes that is the the bartering for moving. They did it because that is who those people were. It's why we felt God draw us to D.C. in the first place. And when our new neighbor asked, who in the world was this group of people? We didn't even know names to tell them, but our answer was easy. That is the church. So practically speaking, 
How do we practice this posture? And then we'll close. Focus your energy and attention on embodying the character of the king instead of only worrying about the benefits of the kingdom. When you enter a space, a gathering, an event, ask yourselves, who am I going to be here, not what am I going to receive from this place? Focus on drawing near to God and imitating Jesus. Worry less about performing, about impressing people. Let him do the work. He will produce fruit in you when you embody this that draws people to you. And keep showing up. People are messy. Community is messy. Friendships are hard. Don't keep your eyes on the exit ready to run. Don't hold this closed off posture of me first. But look out to other people. As we wrap, maybe you're sitting here thinking, that sounds great hypothetically. But I am set in my ways. This is scary, intimidating, time consuming. How am I supposed to reorient my life around Jesus? How am I supposed to open up about my deepest pains and mistakes? How am I supposed to care more about other people than myself? I will challenge you with a great place to start. It's where Paul goes in verse 16. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Get into his word. Let it dwell in you. Take residence in you. Get around his people. Go to him in prayer. Create rhythms and space in your life for the Holy Spirit to chip away at those rough edges of you. You can't do these things and be all these things on your own strength, but you can look to the cross. A perfect demonstration of love, sacrifice, humility, bearing with, forgiving. That is the only way we can become these types of people if Jesus does it in us. Ask God to help orient your life around him. Ask God to help put to death the things that you're struggling with. Ask God to transform your character in his image. Remembering that nothing else you chase is worth building your life on. Remembering that he sees the darkest parts of you that no one else can see and he still loves you. Remembering that even if we fall short, we have a savior who never fails. And ask him for friends. Ask him for relationship with people like this. And he'll do it. A beautiful community like this doesn't form because we have it all together. It's not because we're perfect. It's not because we figured out the right tools and tricks and way to create hype. A community like this forms because of that man. Because we look to him as our guidance. We look to him of who we wanna be. We look to him of transforming us, of drawing us in together. That is only way that a community worth belonging to can be formed. He is our main story. He is the foundation that we are building our life on. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.